Everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are Jason and D from the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, coming to you live from Sheffield, England. <laughs> I am in my Union Jack sleeveless shirt, and Jason is in his Union Jack shorts with no shirt at all. We are here to go toe-to-toe and rock and roll with Def Leppard and the comparison of the Pyromania album and Hysteria. I'm so excited to do this. This is I've had a love affair with these two albums for almost 40 years now. And frankly, there's only one way we can start this podcast, D. Yeah. Unter Klieben, Klappen, Glow. We're going to talk about the history a little bit of Def Leppard, the tragedy and the blessings that they had. Yeah. And then we're going to go through these two hugely impactful albums of the 1980s. I'm super excited. That mean maybe the most defining sound of the 1980s. Absolutely. Like there, there are a handful of bands that defined what rock and roll sounded like in the 1980s. And this is one of those, one of those bands. Without sure. a doubt. Without a doubt. So step inside, walk this way. You and me, babe. <laughs> Let's start with just kind of a pre-story, how Defla was formed and how it kind of came about and when and all that stuff. Sure. There's a whole big, I mean, there's a big story that leads up to Pyromania, and it starts with Joe Elliott as a young teenage boy with dreams of becoming a rock star. And he decides he wants to have a band. He wants the band to be called Def Leppard, spelled properly. And he makes posters and learns how to play the guitar and has these dreams. And then one day he misses his bus and he happens to meet this guy named Pete Willis. And Pete Willis starts talking to him and they realize, hey, we both like music. Pete Willis had a band called... Atomic Mass. Right. He had been in that band with Rick Savage and Tony Kenning. And so they invite Joe Elliott to come and try out for the band. Joe wants to play guitar with them. When they first put Atomic Mass together, Rick Savage played the guitar, Pete Willis played the guitar, and Tony Kenning played the drums. Right. Rick Savage said, well... I don't play guitar as good as you, so I guess I'll play the bass because we have to have a bass. You can't have two guitars and no bass. <laughs> and so he started playing the bass and brought Joe Elliott in. They said, well, why don't you sing and let's see what you got. Right. His audition was Stairway to Heaven. Okay. So as he sang Stairway to Heaven, when it goes up at the end, yeah. Joe stayed low. Right. And they were all like, well, that was great, except why... He didn't go up. I mean, what's the deal? And so he didn't really fancy himself a singer initially, but he would soon learn. You're right. So they weren't in love with his voice, but they thought he had a good voice. They were in love with his dream and his passion for becoming a huge success. And that's really what got him the job as the lead singer in the band. And really what drives Def Leppard today. I mean, he's the engine that makes it go. And he doesn't have a terrific voice. I mean, he's got mm-hmm. a good rock voice. Right. And I think Muttland kind of got the most out of it. Hey, hey. So Jason, tell me, do you remember the first time you heard these guys? 
Yes, I, I, I have a very clear memory of when I heard these guys for the first time. It was after High and Dry. So in 1983, I'm bebopping in my fifth grade class, Mr. Hoover's class. If you've listened to our episodes before, right. I was Mr. Thriller. Mr. Thriller. I loved Michael Jackson. I loved Thriller. And I had this guy that came to my school, and he's like, well, Thriller's great, but have you heard these guys? Uh-huh. And I saw the album cover. I'm like, uh, I mean, it's a cool album cover, but I think I'm going to stick with Michael Jackson. Right. He's like, no, 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 no. You got to listen to this song at least. So I'm like, all right, I'll listen. I mean, I'm, I'm seriously Michael Jackson. He's like, no, well, you got to listen to this song. So he plays Photograph. And I'm like, that song's amazing. Yeah. That song's amazing. Yeah. And that's how I got hooked in was Photograph. So your introduction to the band was Pyromania back in the early 80s. Yes. My introduction to the band, and I, I say introduction, I, I'd heard them. You know, I, I had MTV, so right. I'd, I'd heard bits and, and songs, but it was never an investment for me. I never bought an album. But in eighth grade, I went to my first high school dance. And if you guys went to high school dances when you were a kid, you can imagine the fear and the nervousness and whether you should dance and whether you should not dance. And slowly you get your courage up. And that was what was happening that night. And I had these girls coming up and talking to me. And I was like, this is awesome. (laughs) And then, you know, they convinced me to come out and dance. And we're dancing in a big circle. And that's getting to the end of the night. And then the DJ says, and now the song that you've all been waiting for. And they crank up, pour some sugar on me. And the entire gymnasium erupts. And people are going crazy. So my my first wow, hey, this is a band I need to be listening to was Hysteria. It was Pour Some Sugar on Me. I think that that was probably a lot of people's introduction because yeah. I mean, in the summer of 1988, Pour Some Sugar on Me owned the airwaves. Yeah. And dominated that. I remember Dial MTV. You could call and request your favorite video. Right. It was like number one for like three months. So. Right. So when we started to do this, what I said to myself is, I've never never had the album Pyromania. I know some of the songs off of it, but I'm going to treat it like I'm that kid from long ago. Um, I imagined myself, my young self, if I had been a teenager listening to this type of music in the early 80s, get the album, bring it home. I'm going to put my headphones on. I'm going to crank it up. And I got to say, I was blown away. I was like, holy crap, this is really really good even now what is it nearly 40 years later yeah yeah it's it's still amazing i was i was floored it's a pop metal masterpiece yeah so in january of 1978 steve clark he joined the band yeah and he played freebird for him and they were like oh this guy's really good right played it from beginning to end and if you don't know freebird freebird is leonard skinner's signature song that is, depending on which version, nine to ten minutes long. And so you can imagine a you know young, long-haired, skinny kid rocking out on one of the most well-known guitar solos for a solid ten minutes, and they were hooked. I don't play guitar, but in Guitar Hero? Yeah. 
That was the hardest song on the. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, that's. I think I'd say that's an accurate reflection of how how difficult it is. But they not only were amazed by his guitar playing, but that he had the right look. He did. He came in with no shirt, just a jeans jacket on. Um, had long blonde hair, slung his guitar, hung it way too low, so that he had to pick it up and move it, and there was just a motion and a dance to his. Uh, playing and then of course he had that amazing ability so yep, yep. there you go they've got their second guitarist they've got their bass player they've got their singer and they've got their drummer for a while except the drummer decides that hanging out with his girlfriend is more important than being in the defining metal band of the 80s he and rick stone i'm sure commensurate <laughs> <laughs> yeah rick stone yeah hey. yeah if you don't know who rick stone is go back and listen to van halen episode one <laughs> right <laughs> But here's a funny story. So there's a young kid in the area named Rick Allen, Richard yeah. Allen. He's right. 15 years old. 15. He'd started playing drums when he was 9 or 10 years old. So he was a decent drummer and even at 15 had said, God, the, the drummers around here suck and the bands suck. And then after Tony left the band, Def Leppard put out a one ad. And it said, Leopard Loses Skins. <laughs> and Rick Allen said, hey, look at this. Mom, will you call the band for me? And Hey, Mom. <laughs> hey, Mom, will you, will you call these guys? I'd like to play drums. <laughs> but he's good. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. And he's right place, right time, jumps on the opportunity, yeah. and, and he becomes their drummer. Right. And then just, what, a few short years later, they're opening for... Ozzy Osbourne and Billy Squire. I mean, can you imagine a young kid being involved with that kind of star power? At, at his age? Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. I have a 15-year-old at home. I barely let him feed the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they rehearse, and they rehearse, and they rehearse, and they rehearse. Right. Sheffield, England, where they all come from, is an old steel town. It's steel factories everywhere. If you live in the town, you're pretty well going to be working in a factory somewhere. That's right. And they ended up rehearsing in an old spoon factory and were there for nine months or something like that. And finally... Yeah, Steve Clark went to Joe Elliott and said, Joe, listen, if we don't play a gig, I'm quitting. Right. I'm, I'll go find somebody else. Right. He's like, we're polishing and polishing and polishing, and I can be in here 10 years and we're still polishing the same songs. So it's interesting because you get the impression from the band that they want to be perfect before they go out into the world. They've obviously got this drive that they don't want to put out a bad product. But it's interesting that he's the one that says this to them because he's ultimately the one that ends up dealing with the biggest stage fright once they get really big. It is interesting. Yeah. So Joe Elliott borrows 250 bucks from his dad and they create an EP. Yeah, it's... They ended up selling 24,000 records, which, I mean, if you just think about a group of teenage kids spending 250 bucks to press out an album and they sell 24,000 of them, I mean, if I if I could sell 24,000 songs, I'd yeah. be like in heaven. And they, <laughs> they, they, they get an album that's, that's a pretty significant hit. And that leads to uh, their next album, which their debut album technically is called On Through the Night. Right. This is the first professionally produced album. Yes. This is the one where they've signed with a record label and the record label is producing their album. This is released in March of 1980. Yeah. 
has the song Hello America, which is kind of famous. Right. Uh, it gave kind of a bad taste for the locals in England. They didn't like it. It's, yeah, it's kind of sad. You know, Sheffield didn't really own this band until they were a really big success. They had a lot of bad press that they received, which is unfortunate, but they had aspirations to get out of the town anyway, so it, it worked out. Right. Well, this album, On Through the Night, caught the attention of this guy named Robert John Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang. Or, if you are from Sheffield... Langa. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy is, when he calls them, yeah, he's a celebrity. I mean, he had produced Highway to Hell yeah. and Back in Black. Yeah, which, I mean, holy smokes, right? I mean, come on. But if you look at his library of work, you've got ACDC and Def Leppard, but you've also got Shania Twain, who he ended up marrying, Taylor Swift, Brian Adams. I mean, there's a whole slew of genres that he deals with. And he is, without question, one of the biggest keys to their success. Absolutely. If I took you and I said, all right, grab ACDC's entire catalog, pick their best album, it's going to be produced by Mutt Lang. Yes. If I said, take the entire Cars catalog, pick their best album, Heartbeat City, Yes. Mutt Lang. Okay, so when they get in the studio with Mutt Lang, they produce an album called High and Dry. So it's their first commercial effort. It, I mean, it does pretty well. It sells 250,000 copies. I, again, I'm, I mean, it got into the top 20 albums in the UK and top 50 in the US, I believe. But uh, the way of music back then, even after all that success, the band wasn't making enough money to have being a band as their only job. I mean, Joel talks very publicly about having a top 50 album in the United States and having to work at a construction site. Right, yeah. We don't have any money left. You're going to have to go do some real work. So (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. So High and Dry is released July 11th, 1981. Just before the inception of MTV. When Again, they, another key, another key oh, it's, in the it's puzzle. It's huge in their in their career. Yeah, they're they're spot on ready when MTV hits. Right. So Joe Elliott is working construction jobs after having this big album, at, but as it turns out, they recorded a video for one of the songs off of High and Dry called "Bringing on the Heartbreak." I'm sorry. I cannot imagine a guy who's singing like that, band playing like that, who's now working construction because they don't have enough money. It's crazy. But the video that they had fell right in where it needed to because MTV had... They needed well, videos, said, yeah. said it over and over. They had about 250 videos when they on their first year. And so that bringing on the heartbreak made it into the rotation and they played it and played it. And everybody at that time had started to watch MTV and people started to go... Who is this Def Leppard band? That's right. Timing is everything. Yeah. Now they're going back in the studio to record their third album, Pyromania. Right. And they kind of uh, enter a really specialized deal here. Mutt Lang had produced that first album, and it was all a regular style of production. He was meticulous about things, but you can still, on high and dry, hear the edginess that they had at that time. And they had been placed in this category called the new wave of British heavy metal 
but listening to even their early stuff, I wouldn't describe it as heavy metal. I don't think they ever saw themselves as a heavy metal band. And I've heard Joe Elliott say that we have a lot more in common with Duran Duran right. than we do Quiet Riot or ACDC or whatever. Right. He really admired the band Queen, and he really admired... David Bowie and... Mott the Hoople. Mott the Hoople, thank you. Mott the Hoople. And Queen. He loved Queen. And that was kind of the sound that they were going for, kind of a ACDC meets Queen kind of sound. Never really, again, what I would describe as metal. All right, so as they're recording Pyromania, they start to have these personal problems within the band. Right. That ultimately they've got to deal with. So they entered this deal with Mutt Lang where he basically had complete control over the sound. The first album that they recorded they had done in 30 days. The second album that they had recorded they had done in 12 weeks. They had been recording on Pyromania at the five-month mark five months of recording, they had not committed one single song to tape. It's incredible. Right. Mutt Lang had a definite vision about what he wanted to happen, and the the mixing board became an instrument for the band. This is what Mutt Lang did for Def Leppard. And he was the ultimate perfectionist, which for the band meant agonizing hell. And at some point, they said to Steve Clark, hey, you need to go dry out, buddy. So Steve went away, which left only Pete Willis to do the guitar parts for a time. Well, Pete also was a drinker and didn't handle his liquor as well as Steve Clark did. And one day came into the studio after a a night of heavy drinking and was still under the influence and could not couldn't play. play. Couldn't play. play worth a flip. I've heard Joe Elliott talk about how in the early days, Pete Willis, after getting a little bit too much of the drink, would readily go into the ring with Mike Tyson. He was that type of sort of angry drunk. Right. Steve Clark drank twice as much what was half the a-hole that Pete Willis was, apparently. Right. And so when he couldn't play, and they're trying to impress this guy. They had said, they had told him over and over and over, hey, you can't do this. You know, we'll let you drink during our stage shows, but you cannot come into the recording studio drunk. When he does this, and they've, you know, you got to think about how long they've been working their tail off, long days, killing it, frustration, tears. And then Mutt Lang comes to Joe Elliott with this sad attempt at a guitar solo by Pete Willis. And he says, listen to this. And then he just starts laughing, laughing to tears. Mutt Lang is laughing to tears at this. And Joe Elliott isn't laughing at all. He just has to say, we can't do this. We can't take the chance that Mutt Lang is going to walk out on us after all of this work. We can't take the chance that Pete Willis is going to destroy this album because of his alcoholism. We have to let him go. He said he didn't want Mutt Lang to think they were a bunch of losers. They only had one loser. Right. So they gave him the old get out. Yeah. But... Phil Collin, they hire the same day? Yeah. Joe Elliott made a call. Phil Collin had been uh, playing. He'd played for several bands, but at the time that this occurred, he was playing for a glam rock band called Girl. And they called Phil and he came over and they said, hey, you know, we've already got the, the bulk of these songs done. We just need some guitar solos. Why don't you go listen to this one for an hour or two and, you know, make up a guitar solo and let's see how it goes. And he came back in 30 minutes and executed a perfect guitar solo and those are the words of Mutt Lang Mm -hmm. and if Mutt Lang says it's a perfect guitar solo you can rest assured it is a perfect guitar solo
time we get to the point that Pete Willis gets fired, Rick Allen hadn't been playing the drum for months because Mutt Lang said, I don't want to use a drummer. I want to use a drum machine. That's insane. I mean, in 1982, to say, I want to use a drum machine for a rock album was crazy. So they would take samples of particular drum sounds to find the perfect pitch. And then, of course, the timing was mechanical. It was precise. It was uninfluenced by human error. So Rick Allen hasn't played in several months. They get rid of Pete Willis. They bring in Phil Collin. They finally say, okay, Rick, come back in. We're going to record some of your drums now. He's like, okay. And so he plays for a few minutes. They're like, okay, hold on. Okay, yeah, just hold on, man. Okay, just listening. Still listening. Yeah, just a minute more, Rick. Hold on. And finally, he just says, hey, you guys, you know, why don't you have me listen to it? And maybe I can give you my opinion on it. And Mutt Lang says, Rick, when I want your opinion, I'll ask for it. At which point, Rick lost his <laughs> mind and took an entire set of drumsticks and chunked it at the recording studio window. Yes. Yeah, he was not happy. Rick Allen got a little bit of a temper, I think. He does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It can, yeah. I won't say any more about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I could, I mean, I, I could see myself losing it in that scenario as well. well. Yeah, especially. I haven't played for months. You bring me back in. Then I'm sitting here waiting on you to do something that I'm the expert at. And when I offer my help, you say, essentially, why don't you go outside and play? Hide and go screw yourself. <laughs> Hide and go screw yourself. <laughs> All right, so Pyromania is released January 20th, 1983. So the opening track of Pyromania is a song called Rock Rock Till You Drop. To me, this is a great entry song, a kickoff song. Kind of like Lay Your Hands On Me for Bon Jovi's New Jersey. Yeah. It's, it's the song they play at the beginning of the concert that's like, let's, all right, everybody, let's go. High energy, get fired up. Well, you know, when I first started looking at these guys, I had heard some people say that back then, when they were first becoming famous, that they were just an ACDC knockoff band. To which I thought, these guys don't sound anything like ACDC so. to me. Yeah. But that first song is, is definitely very ACDC-esque, in my opinion. So it is a little screechy like ACDC, yeah. right? I mean, He's really leaning on his voice right there. So it's a great kickoff song to the album. All right, after Rock Rock Till You Drop, you get the first single, Photograph. That's a song that before listening to this album, uh, like really for the first time, uh, that I was definitely familiar with. Oh, yeah. This is a song kind of about Marilyn Monroe. Have you ever watched the video? Well, let's just say that all of the songs on both of these albums <laughs> are about sex, guns, and rock and roll. <laughs> and the band's life is about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So it's, it's more sex... More drugs, more guns, Honestly, more rock and roll. Honestly, I think that's being generous because there's a lot of songs that are about nothing. 
Oh, they're, they're literally about nothing. They they were not looking to write deep and meaningful songs. What they wanted, their goal, was to write songs that were accessible to the general public. So they're not going to be quoting some J.R.R. Tolkien novel in one of their songs like Led Zeppelin. They're not going to be telling a story about the Bronx like Billy Joel. This is just what words fit with the melody that we have and will people be able to sing along with the song. So Photograph is very radio friendly. This is a song that I could listen to with my parents. That first little, I don't know, I don't know what you would call what do you think about this, Dee? You need to comment on this. This is the first little chirp at the beginning of this song. So I can't say for sure what that is. It almost sounds like the guitar being plugged into the amp. It has that kind of click on where the electricity hits and it's ching But knowing what I know about this album, it probably was something that was specifically designed by Mutt Lang. Yeah, I think you're right about it, that. It, and it sounded like it may even have been a backwards recording. I'm not entirely sure. I'm speculating completely on that. So this is the video. A lot of this is we're going to talk about the song, but the video is kind of wrapped up with it. This is the video. Joe Elliott, they were still a little bit poor. This album hadn't broken yet. He was walking by a store window and he saw the Union Jack t-shirt. He said it was six ninety nine. <laughs> so he bought it, it was sleeveless, wore it in this video, yeah. and that has become like the Frankenstrat for Eddie Van Halen. In America, everybody started buying the Union Jack sleeveless t-shirts in homage to Def Leppard. So in 83 and 84, this was number one on the U.S. album Rock Tracks by Billboard. It was number 12 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 it was number 68 on the UK singles chart and number 32 on Canada 50 singles. Photograph was a huge song and still a staple when they play it live. Pete Willis's guitars are still on Photograph, although Phil Collin actually plays the guitar solo. It's kind of interesting. This guy who was fired and the guy who replaced him both play on the same song. Right. And and just as a credit to the band, even though Pete Willis was, you know, fired midway through the production of this album, they still listed him on the album. He still got, still gets royalties from the album. So I think that's the stand-up thing to do, right thing to do for him. Yeah, for sure. Okay, before we move on from Photograph, I just want to say, as much as I love both of these albums, Photograph might be the best song on either album. Hmm, Okay. I wouldn't agree with that statement. I mean, that's a, obviously a perspective statement. I like Photograph all right, but there are even songs on this album just from listening to it for this podcast that I'm going to say I like better than Photograph. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's get into it. Okay. All right. Next track. Yes. It's called Stage Fright. Fred is good. I really enjoyed listening to it. It wasn't one I think I'd ever heard before, but it's got that kind of pumping guitar. And then it, when it, you go into the chorus of the song. Get that. The pop feeling, you know, that it's not, certainly it's still rock and roll, but it is more melodic and less hard-hitting than your typical rock and roll song is going to be at the time. You get a little bit of the stage 
live feel at the beginning of the show, even though it was recorded in the studio. You get Joe Elliott hitting those high pitches that he was afraid to hit during his audition. He's, yeah, that's he's, right. he's letting them down. He really is. Still a good song, not a skipper, but not one of the stronger tracks on the album. Somewhere in the distance, I hear the bells ring. Track number four, Too Late for Love. Love it. Love it. When I was listening to this one front to back, when this song came on and they hit that chorus just a little bit into the song where they're all harmonizing together. I was like, holy crap, this is good. And this is what kind of defines Def Leppard for me is this, the, the harmonizing chorus that they do. It's spot on. And obviously, I you know, realized later on it's because Mutt Lang has built it brick by brick, and I'm sure he had each guy sing it about 100,000 times before he found the perfect one. And then he stacked all those perfects together, and it's, it's breathtaking. This really is a great song. Yeah. It's a great song. It's so Amazing. good. Yeah, so this good. was their fourth release. This was their fourth single. Yeah. Made it up to number nine on the mainstream rock charts. I can say that this one and Rock of Ages are neck and neck for me for being best song on the album. It's hard to argue with this song. I mean, it's so it's so good. I, I would say that it builds in strength all the way through the guitar solo. Okay, so that introduction with the wind creates this atmosphere, and then you have this fantastic combination of just a guitar and Joe Elliott singing, and it's so good, and it brings you in just before that awesome chorus. I can remember listening to various songs as I grew up where they had little whispers that happened behind the scenes, you know, that when you're listening in the ra- on the radio, you don't hear it, but you got headphones locked in and there's, there's this little part, I think it's in Babe, I'm going to leave you, but there's this little whisper of the lyric right before the lyric and Every time I heard it, I'd be like, what the crap was <laughs> Who's that? Who's talking to me? Yeah. What? Oh, gosh, that's on my headphones. Okay. But you were saying that you yeah. listen to this. There's a, I mean, you have to listen so carefully. But anytime I'm listening to this, especially when I've got it turned up in my car, yeah. there's a little bitty beep beep <laughs> that, that happens right before the second chorus. Yeah. And it sa- I keep, there are lots of times I'll be in the car, I'm like, did my phone just ring? <laughs> Um, this video, I read that Joe Elliott, they filmed this after hanging out with Meatloaf and Elton John having champagne. Nice. Kind of the benefits of being a rock star. I think I recorded a video after having <laughs> champagne with Meatloaf and Elton John once. Oh, so nice. Well, we both love Too Late for Love. Yeah. Definitely one of the strongest tracks in the album. For sure. All right, so the next one after that? Yeah. Die Hard the Hunter. So Die Hard the Hunter is very Pink Floyd to me when I hear it. You know, the you've got, and it's it's very pre-1 by Metallica. Okay. Yeah, you know, because you've got the helicopter sounds and the sounds of war going on. You know, on the wall, you've got helicopter and that one as well. And even, but even the, the, the guitar as it comes in, uh, you've got an acoustic, I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe it's a 12-string guitar playing. And the melody that's played is very reminiscent of Pink Floyd. And you get the gunshots, you've got this idea of war, and then you hear these kind of like laser shots, which you're like, well, is this a helicopter or a spaceship? What am I hearing here? But it's, 
another solid track. Very, very good. In fact, what you're describing, yeah, what the exact thing that you're describing, yeah, could describe Gods of War on Hysteria. Yeah, you have sound effects. Yeah. Now, Gods of War took it to the next level where you got Ronald Reagan talking and Margaret Thatcher and some other yeah. stuff. We'll talk about that one here in a little bit, but it's very similar. Right. I can say for sure. I've even heard the band members say it. We're, we're picking things that we like from other bands and we're taking those and making them our own. Oh, for sure. I mean, if Eddie Van Halen can do it, anybody can do it, right? But I think that they've definitely taken some stuff. Pink Floyd, for example, made it their own. And I think that possibly Metallica took some of this one and made it some of their own. Well, as we have discussed and we'll discuss further the album pyromania set in motion pop metal for the rest of the 80s into the 90s i would argue that this is one of the most influential this gave us hair metal it really did yeah it it really brought a, a different type of rock in and you know we talked about the fact that rock was disappearing it was dying so luckily we have in america we have van halen in Britain, we have Def Leppard, who's coming to America, where we also have MTV. It's perfect little pieces coming together. And to throw back to our original episode again, you have record producers that are an integral part of the sound of the band. You know, we talked about Thriller, them looking for the sonic sound. There's no question that Mutt Lang was trying to do the same thing for rock music. And what a perfect time to do it when MTV is like... We want rock. We're tired of disco. We don't want to hear punk. We want some rock music, and we want some cute boys and videos to go along with it. Enter Def Leppard. You just say cute boys and videos. Cute boys and videos. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Listen, uh, I've got five kids. (laughs) I am secure in saying there was a draw that this band had that not many other (laughs) bands that were playing hard rock music had. And that's that's documentable. 60% of the audience in any given Def Leppard concert is going to be women. And frequently hot women. That's right. And that was something new for rock music while we're talking about it. As far as hard rock goes, yeah, the the predominant audience for hard rock at that time is going to be pimply-faced guys (laughs) with dark hair and torn-up shirts, right? Enter Def Leppard, and suddenly the girls are like, oh, I think I like hard rock too. It was such a great time for rock and roll. (laughs) It really was, yeah, especially for those guys. All right, everybody hit stop on your tape player, kick it out. Flip it over, side two. Side two. Or flip over the LP, if you will. That's or Flip the LP. There yeah. we go. All right. So now we're on to the third single released, which is called Foolin'. Love it. Let's listen to it. The stuttering song. Yeah, the foolin' is a hook. Okay, so this is, as Jason would describe it, a summer driving, top down, windows down, radio turned up. This song comes on the radio, you are cranking this thing up and letting the wind blow in your hair. Absolutely. And you're singing along. <laughs> so, as cool as this song is, and I mean, you, this is such, as you would describe it, a radio-friendly song. This is a song that you're going to latch on to. It doesn't matter whether you're into rock and roll or disco or punk. You hear this, and you're like, this is a good freaking song. And then they made the video, (laughs) 
And I don't, uh, this is like the perfect uh, example of the nonsense videos that we would see on MTV from time to time. Somebody somewhere at some point said, why don't we start the video with a girl in a mask playing the harp who's on fire. <laughs> what a great idea. What? what? I love it. I love it. And Tell me more. Let's chain Joe Elliott down like he's Frankenstein yeah. uh, and we'll angle him backwards so we're getting a full view of his crotch as the camera comes in. And his massive white pants. Yeah, his pants that are way too high. He's got mom jeans on. <laughs> <laughs> and then just in the middle, we're going to have this really creepy lady look at the moon as if it is a crystal ball. That sounds fantastic. That we are willing awesome. to spend our money on that video. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the videos at this time were a little bit strange. I mean, uh, even photograph, you have all those girls that are in the cages, you know. And oh, my gosh. Joe does that giant split jump and right into the camera. But it was cool at the time, and we ate it up, right? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Foolin' reached number nine on the mainstream rock chart and number 28 on the Hot 100. Awesome. So it was, a, it was a big hit for him. Yeah, and, and rightly so. Next is... Und und lieben, lieben, lieben. Rock of Ages, Rock baby. of Ages. Yeah. Again, second release. Brilliant. Brilliant. Photograph and Rock of Ages brought this album into the yep. public eye for sure. And just to you know, a little history on this song, you know, we talked about they had no songs written when they started recording Pyromania. And they had this one, they had it all melodied out, but still didn't have the chorus to it. They were just like, da, 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 da. I mean, that was it. They just had, they were just scatting whatever they did. I mean, they're in Mutt Lang's recording studio. One day they come in, the day before another band has been in there and maybe they were recording some hymns because there happens to be a hymnal and it's propped open to the song Rock of Ages. The hymn, Rock the of hymn, Ages. The hymn, Rock of Ages. The yes. one you sing in church. Yes. And so Joe Elliott sees this book lying there and just sings it. Lang says, that's it. That's it. That's what we've been looking for. And my golly, that was right. I mean, what a perfect chorus. Oh, it's so good. I, I don't know if you know this or not. I mean, we can talk about this later, but it is better to burn out than fade away. Oh my gosh. How many people have said that, really? <laughs> Highlander, right? Remember uh, that scene in Highlander when he's sure. like, oh, better to burn out than to fade away? Right. Now, I'm pretty sure that he got it from Neil Young as opposed to Def Leppard, but, you know, oh, whatever. Sure. And Pearl Jam does it too. You know, hey, it's, it is timeless. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Rock of Ages did really well. It reached number 16 on the Hot 100 and number one on the Top Rocks chart. Okay, so Phil Cullen is a phenomenal guitar player. There's just no question about it. He is technically proficient, really good, but Def Leppard doesn't have a lot of those timeless guitar solos. It 
it really doesn't have any except for the song. Rock of Ages has a really great, and it's not long, but it's very memorable little guitar solo by, by Phil Collin in there. Um, but he's brilliant. He does what needs to be done. I mean, all of the rock music that was coming out had these big solos in it, and everybody was trying to be Eddie Van Halen or right. uh, you know, trying to recreate the Leonard Skinner field, but this is the one song that you can go, oh yeah, I know that, I know that guitar solo. That's a Def Leppard guitar solo. One of the things that we need to talk about, we, we really haven't covered this, the uh, very, very famous intro, the Unter Glieben Glappen Glomen, right? right. What a, does that mean? Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. It right. doesn't mean anything, right? right? And so in the studio, there would, you know, Mutt Lang would just beat him to death and there right. was this grind. But occasionally he would do some levity. Yes. He'd, he'd break it up and be funny from time to time. That's how he would sort of crack him up before the song started. Instead of saying one, two, three, four, he said Untergliedern Globen Globen. And the rest is the rest is history. I mean, it's rock music lore, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So we can't let this one go without talking about the video once again. Woo, early '80s videos. <laughs> before he even starts singing, you've got monks. You've got an owl. You've got a woman playing chess with a wizard. You have a tree on fire, and you have Phil Cullen's butt. <laughs> uh, and let's not forget the smashing goblet and the giant lightsaber that somehow turns into an electric guitar. Uh, <laughs> Joe Elliott is swinging a nine-foot lightsaber. I wonder if there's some sort of analogy that they're trying to do. A euphemism, maybe. <laughs> Very phallic uh, sword in this. Oh. I love this song from the minute I heard it uh, for the first time off Pyromania. I love yeah. the, uh, the the burning sound effects and the uh, the idea of setting fire to stuff. That was really cool. Down to the ground. All right, we're done with Rock of Ages? I think we're done with Rock of Ages. That leaves just a couple of songs left on the album. And... They're not bad songs. No, I think they're all good. I think Coming Under Fire is the next one. It gets radio play. Now, it wasn't released as a single, but I've heard it on radio a lot. The chorus is really good. Yeah. That's a good song. Solid. It's absolutely solid. Just not one of their biggest hits. Okay. So coming under fire, not a big hit, but uh, but a good song. Next one, next to last track, is Action Not Worth. I wonder what that song's about. <laughs> if you listen to the words, <laughs> it's about making a movie. Right. Wait. Except it's, the, the, what kind of movie are we talking about oh, here? Yeah. Action. Yeah. An action. You don't need any dialogue in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you be the hero, I'll be the star. Again, I go back to all of this is sex, guns, and rock and roll, baby. Let me tell you a quick story about this song, Action Not Worse. Okay. I'm going to give a quick shout out to my good buddy, Scott Foster. Okay. Hey, he, Scott. He stayed up late with me. I had a project in college where we had to make a short film about anything we wanted. Right. It was basically a get-to-know-your-camera, get-to-know-the-editing equipment. Right. 
And so I went around town filming my girlfriend, my friends, the football stadium, ducks, what cars, whatever I could find. Right. And I pieced it together to this song. Yes. And it basically the song, you know, it's about making a movie. So I made a movie to a song about making a movie. Right. And we stayed up all night, and I, I think it's it turned out okay. I got an A on the project. You got an A. All yeah. right. That's all right. That's awesome. That's good. <laughs> yeah, the the euphemism here is is about as uh, subtle as Pearl Necklace by ZZ Top. <laughs> <laughs> and Black and Blue by uh, yeah. Van Halen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I like the song. I listen to it. When it comes on, I turn it up. Right. Um, and then we, we round out, finish up the album with Billy's Got a Gun. Billy's Got a Gun. It's a solid song. It's, it's not very good. Yeah. Um, a guy coming home from a war, guns again. It's a bit long for my taste. This one's nearly six minutes long, and I think they could probably tidy that up a bit. But that's probably my my sole criticism of the songs on this album. Yeah, it's it's on the lower end of the album. I think. Yeah. It's good. It's solid. But it's not a not one I'm going to crank up or anything. Right, right. So after months and months of recording, they finally piece it all together brick by brick under Mutt Lang's onerous tutelage. And what comes out is a fantastic album. And it proceeds to do exceptionally well. Six million copies in the U.S. Yeah. And sold 100,000 copies every week from its release through 1983. So this album as a whole is so good, it was only topped by Thriller, the best-selling album of all time. This Pyromania album spent six months in the number two position while Thriller retained its title. It's truly, it's an amazing thing. Number two when Thriller is dominating the charts is no laughing matter. No, I mean just short of Thriller, this is the this is the number one album of the early to mid-80s. This album ramps up pop metal for the rest of the decade. I mean, you talk about a band that defines the sound of rock music in the 80s, right? We've talked about Van Halen and how influential they were. This band is in that same category. They are as much an influence on all of the other bands. And when I say influence, I mean other bands are coming along and stealing their stuff. You listen to Rat, and you go, yeah. oh, hey, there's an American version of Def Leppard. Yeah. Except they only have one good song instead of a whole album worth. <laughs> right. Right? Hey, listen, I, I don't really know, but 1984 came out after Pyromania. Yeah. I mean, maybe Eddie saw their success and thought, hey, I could do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we know that that album was more produced. I mean, rock albums until this album came out were bands getting together and playing some songs. And just another side note, while they're recording this album, and Joe Elliott broke down several times, lost his voice severely for a time in this one, would would in tears say to Mutt Lang, I can't do it again. He goes, it's not good enough yet. You have to do it again. He said, I can't do it any better. He says, you have to. <laughs> so Joe Elliott leaves the studio, walks to the next door studio where who happens to be recording white snake right and david coverdale who has perfect pitch comes in 
records a song in one take. <laughs> Four minutes. Poor Joe Elliott has been reduced to tears because he's been spending months trying to get the perfect sound for this Taskmaster. And David Coverdale comes in and probably smoked a cigarette before That's he started right. singing. That's right. It's That's all worth it, Joe, wasn't it? It was That's all right. worth it. And I, I do think that, I mean... David Coverdale has a better, stronger rock voice, but I think Mutt Lang gets the most out of Joe Elliott. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, And I could listen to Joe sing all day long. Yeah. All right. So that takes care of Pyromania. Right. The album becomes a huge success. They ultimately sell 10 million copies of the album. They're riding high. They're doing well. And their videos are doing well. They're getting lots of play on MTV. And they say, okay, let's now get together. We're going to make another album. And of course, they enlist Mutt Lang to help them out again. All right, so this is where it gets really interesting. So the band is at the peak of a success. It says, we got to do another album. And then Mutt Lang can't do it anymore. And then... Some real tragedy happens. Some real tragedy, yeah. It's really questionable how this album truly got made, but you're going to have to wait to find out about those stories on our next episode where we'll talk about hysteria. True hysteria. Yeah, true hysteria. That, that's, that, that's solid. It's interesting that both of these both of these albums have a psychological component to the title um, because having to go with this band went through, I could, I could see being a little bit off. <laughs> I can't wait to get into the next, uh, when we talk about Hysteria, one of the defining albums of the 1980s. Yeah. It's going to be incredible. Hope you come back and join us next week. Come back and join us next week. This is not a choice. You are hereby ordered by us to come back and, and listen in as we talk about Hysteria and then give you our final judgment on which of these two albums is the best Def Leppard album. Music images and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education in conjunction with the fair use agreement under the U.S. copyright law.